Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. This week's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Sign up today and get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook of your choice from Audible.com. Since the Benghazi story broke in the last few days and update after update have appeared, there's one person I've wanted to hear from, and that is Steve Hayes of the Weekly Standard. Steve, so glad to have you on the show. Hi, Michael. How are you? Uh, well, thanks to you, I'm spitting nails mad over what happened over in Benghazi, and in particular, the emails that you uncovered. And I, I hate to say that not everybody knows that story because they should, but could you walk us through that again real quickly? Sure, yeah. Well, basically, uh, what I wrote up for the Weekly Standard this week is um, a report about how the talking points that were provided to the administration and used by Susan Rice were put together uh, over the course of a 24-hour period on September 14th, stretching into September 15th, uh, via email, in an interagency process, and then ultimately in a meeting, a deputies committee meeting, in which the final version of the talking points, the one that um, appears to have been pretty well sanitized um, and and, uh, dumbed down, uh, was finally approved. My understanding is that from the beginning, the intelligence people said yes to al-Qaeda and no to YouTube video. Is that right? Yeah, what's very interesting is is if you look at the first draft of the talking points as prepared by the CIA's Office of Terrorism Analysis, they say right up in the, in the first paragraph uh, or the second paragraph, we know that uh, terrorists with links to al-Qaeda participated in these attacks. Now, anybody who's familiar with the way that the CIA provides its assessments to policymakers understands that either in an unclassified or a classified setting, they often give some sense of how confident they are. So they'll say usually in classified reports to policymakers, we know with high confidence, thus and such, or we know with moderate confidence. Right. Well, in this document and this version of these talking points provided to policymakers, the CIA said without any qualification whatsoever, we know that al-Qaeda elements participated in these attacks. So it was the one thing that that the intelligence community, or maybe one of several things that the intelligence community said right from the outset that that they knew and that they had a good beat on. And Greg Hicks, former deputy chief of the mission at the uh, embassy in Tripoli, said, and it was reported over the weekend, Quote, I thought it was a terrorist attack from the get-go. I never reported a demonstration. I reported an attack on the consulate. If you look at the last report, it says, Greg, we are under attack. Right. Those were the words that Chris Stevens spoke to uh, Greg Hicks in a phone call uh, shortly before he was killed, before Stevens was killed. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't just Greg Hicks who was reporting from Tripoli uh, that he thought this was a terrorist attack. I mean, you had... Um, alerts sent out from the State Department's Operations Center right away while the fighting was going on, saying that this that, that the compound or the facility was under attack. And almost immediately we had indications that uh, al-Qaeda elements were involved. You had a report on September 12th written by the CIA station chief in Libya who reported that eyewitnesses said that these were well-known jihadists who had been involved in the attack. And we also had uh, communications intercepts between al-Qaeda-linked terrorists uh, with Ansar al-Sharia, one of the local uh, al-Qaeda affiliates, explaining or discussing their participation in these attacks. So it was very clear to pretty much everybody 
uh, immediately that this was not only a terrorist attack, but it was a terrorist attack that involved elements of, of al-Qaeda-linked groups. You know, it's one thing to be surprised by an attack. I mean, 9-11 obviously surprised, but we just didn't have it in our collective imagination that they could do something like this. But it seems to me, uh, Steve, particularly talking to you as I am from Boston, we've got a couple of attacks that should not have surprised anyone. The uh, uh, consulate in Benghazi had been attacked twice. As you just pointed out, there was all kinds of chatter about wanting to get them. It was on 9-11, not exactly a subtle you know, calendar date choice. Right. And then here in Boston, you have a guy who openly spouted his Islamist views, posted them on websites, was on two terror watch lists, traveled back and forth you know, to and from Dagestan and got in shouting matches at his uh, mosque because of his extremist views. And a week after the bombing, no one in the FBI was looking for him because they didn't know who he, they still didn't know who he was. Is it reasonable to say what the hell is going on in the Obama administration when it comes to fighting Islamist terror? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think we've got a lot to learn about what happened in Boston. There's no question about that. And, but do you and see the, the similarity, I, the similarity of the failure of that this was, th- th- there's stuff that we supposedly knew. I, I, maybe you can't stop Boston from happening, but surely within 48 hours, you're knocking on Zarniev's door going, hey, where were you the other day, right? But no, well, nothing. Well, yeah, there, there's, there, there is certainly a, a lack of communications afterwards or, or maybe just, an inability uh, to get to information as quickly as as we need it. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the case of Boston, as you suggest, I mean, you had the FBI having already done these these preliminary interviews with him. You had the CIA putting him on watch lists. But what apparently happened is that this ping uh, that was sent throughout the Department of Homeland Security reached basically reached one individual uh, who worked for Border Patrol at Logan Airport and who had to make a determination as to whether that was meaningful or not. And I was told that uh, this person in his eight-hour shift that day had about 300 of these pings. So clearly you're looking at some kind of a a failure of the system when when the FBI, which is the agency that obtained the uh, information originally, followed up on it in these preliminary interviews, didn't get the ping automatically later and didn't know, as you say, Michael, after the attack. To go look for Damalur Tsarnaev. Is there something st- structural about the fact that we couldn't see the attack on Benghazi coming? The fact that t- as of last week, we just got the FBI releasing the identity of people we are looking for, you know, months later. Is there something structural here? Or is this just, you know, common bumbling from bureaucrats? Well, I would say certainly in the aftermath, it's not structural. I mean, this is the, the problem, I think with the way the Obama administration handled this. And we have to remember that these attacks took place some six weeks before the presidential election and a week after President Obama spoke at the Democratic National Convention and mm-hmm. made a case that al-Qaeda was, if not quite yet dead, on, on its way to, a, to a, a, a final death. And, you know, I think in that context, it's not, I don't think it's a stretch to say that it was not a high priority for the administration to bring these people to justice in the immediate aftermath of this. I mean, we didn't have an FBI team on the ground until October 4th, so more than three weeks after the Benghazi attacks. And Greg Hicks, uh, this number two diplomat in the U.S. Embassy in Libya at the time, says one of the reasons is that we had so insulted the government of Libya by claiming that this wasn't a terrorist attack when the government of Libya was, was saying that it was, right. and, and by essentially pushing this false narrative, 
that we didn't, they weren't eager to provide the security that would have enabled the FBI to, to get on the ground and to do its, its job. And, you know, the, the outrageous thing about that is you had news organizations, CNN and the Washington Post, a foreign policy magazine, uh, walking among the, the rubble of the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, the U.S. facility in Benghazi, picking up very sensitive papers, including one document that listed the Libyans, the local Benghazi residents who had been cooperating with the U.S. government, which is essentially a death sentence if, if that falls into the wrong hands. It's also incredible. We almost can't believe it. And the complaint I get again and again is, oh, this is a Republican topic. Only Republicans care about this. This seems to me so much bigger than, just to pick an example, uh, Stephen, Watergate. Why doesn't, where are the hungry Washington reporters, media types, who want to make their name by bringing down former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton or taking this to the White House where one of these threads inevitably will lead? Well, this this is I've been I've been in journalism or um, you know either either writing about it or mm-hmm. analyzing it or teaching journalism and or doing journalism for twenty years, and I will say I've never seen such a divide as we're we're watching right now on on Benghazi. And what fascinates me is that we have so much new information and new and credible information from credible people. I mean, some of the stuff. The, the stuff that I reported uh, last week over the weekend is in emails. I mean, it, these are time-stamped. They're from the administration themselves. Uh, the timeline comes directly from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. We can see the changes in the talking points on paper. We can see how this all happened. And beyond that, you've got people like Greg Hicks, uh, who was, when Chris Stevens died, the top diplomat on the ground in Libya. Telling his story, you've got Mark Thompson, who is a uh, counterterrorism official at the State Department, telling his story this coming let, Wednesday. Let me interrupt you right and there because the New York Times isn't covering it, the Washington Post isn't covering it. I mean, all of these people that you would expect to cover it just because it's a good story. I mean, uh, you know, in in, this, in a journalistic sense, right? And they're all taking a pass. Uh, one last uh, topic, and that is Hillary Clinton, widely believed to be the nominee presumptive for 2016. How does the story impact her, and how has she been able to avoid any blowback from it? Well, it's a good question. I think there's a lot to learn about what role she played, but there were a couple of suggestions in emails sent from a senior State Department official, Victoria Newland, um, last, uh, I'm sorry, uh, on on uh, Friday, September 14th, when there was this back and forth in this interagency process about how the talking points were going to come out. The CIA made some adjustments to the talking points, and uh, she emailed back, my building leadership, quote-unquote, hmm. isn't happy with the talking <laughs> points. And then next day, the, the talking points were, were basically rewritten. All hail so, the building leader. Yes, our building leader <laughs> shall guide us. Steve Hayes, thanks so much for joining us and bringing us the very latest on Benghazi. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Standard podcast. Please check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. And thanks to audible.com for their special offer, a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook of your choice. Be sure to check out the special offer from audible.com. I'm your host, Michael Graham.